What a day that's going to be when we are called to go home to heaven, be there forever with our Lord, to dance, to sing, to praise Him. It's beyond our imagination what that's going to be like. But we want to try to experience it here uh, as we gather together as God's people on Sundays. We should be trying to have happen here what's going to be happening up there. Before I get into the message, could I just say a big thanks to Russ Gordon for the, the decorations. Isn't that beautiful? We are very blessed to have Russ and, and uh, Leah and Randy. They are great helpers to him and the decorations of the, of the Christmas season. We're thankful for them. Uh, I want to begin a series today uh, through the book of Acts, which is, of course, the fifth book in your New Testament. And I, I thought about this as I prepared the, the message today. It, it's baffling to me that that I've preached here for 28 plus years and I have never preached through the book of Acts. Now, I've preached a lot of sermons out of Acts through the years. I've referenced Acts many, many times in my preaching through the years, but I've never preached verse by verse through this particular book. And I want to do that in 2016. I would encourage you to read the book of Acts, on your own. And uh, become familiar with this book and its content. It will certainly help you be better prepared as you come on Sundays and hear the preaching from this particular book. Of course, Acts was written by Luke, the physician, who traveled a lot with Paul in his missionary journeys. Now, of course, before... Uh, Luke wrote Acts, he also wrote another book in our New Testament, which is that book which bears his name, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Acts is really book one of, uh, or book two of Luke's writing. Luke is book one, and Acts is book two. Luke covers the story of Jesus. It's, it begins with uh, the birth of Jesus and, and uh, tells the story of Jesus. And it ends with, with his ascension into heaven. And then Acts picks up right where Luke leaves off. Acts is the continuation of the story of Jesus. Acts is the story of the New Testament church. It shows the beginning of that church. It shows the expansion of that church. Interestingly, some of your Bibles may have, as the title of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, uh, I, I, I looked in my, my Bible this morning, the, the New American Standard Version has that particular title, the Acts of the Apostles. I looked in my New International Version this morning, and it simply has the title of Acts. And so depending on which book you're looking at, which version is the title, but really the Acts of the Apostles is pretty, pretty good in that it's telling us about the Apostles as they continue the work of Jesus, as they take the message of Jesus to the world. And really, honestly, it's the Acts of two apostles primarily. In the first part of Acts, you're going to be reading a lot about 
Peter, the apostle, and in the latter half of the book, you deal mostly with the apostle Paul. Before we get to Acts 1, I'd like to read to you four verses out of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And you can easily see the connection of these two, two, these two books. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. Just a couple of things that I want to point out to you from those verses. One... Luke wrote to a fella named Theophilus. Now, we're not even sure who Theophilus was. His name means dear to God or friend of God. Probably he was a Roman official because Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. It's possible that Theophilus has inquired to Luke about Jesus. He's asking Luke about this Jesus of Nazareth, and so Luke is responding to his inquiry. And the second thing I want you to see is that Luke carefully investigated everything. That seems to be Luke's way. He's very thorough. He's a person that pays attention to detail. He's been very diligent in his research, probably more than any of the other gospel accounts, you could say, that Luke, in his writing, has put things in consecutive order. Or we could say it this way, he, his book is a more accurate account chronologically of the life of Jesus than any of the other gospels. Oftentimes with the other Gospels, they, they're more event-minded. This event happened, and this event happened, and that event happened, and they may not necessarily be concerned about whether those events are completely in order. Luke, though, on the other hand, everything is exactly in order chronologically as it happened. A very detailed person. And that's why we see in his Gospel, he starts out with the birth of John the Baptist, and then he deals with the birth of Jesus in more detail than any of the other Gospels that we have. And then he, he details for us the life of Jesus, three years of ministry. He's the one who deals with, with Jesus when he's 12 years old in that story in the Passover, uh, in the temple, as, as, as he's uh, lost from his parents. He's the only one who deals with that story. He deals with Jesus' ministry right up through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's where his gospel ends. And then Acts picks up right where he has left off. Jesus has his disciples gathered to himself. He's about to, send, to ascend into heaven. Let me read to you Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The first account I composed, he's referring back to Luke, the gospel. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while he was looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him Go into heaven. Can you imagine being in the shoes of the apostles at this point as they are eyewitnesses of his ascension into heaven? They have just watched him defy gravity by being lifted up into heaven on a cloud and now he is out of their sight and they are standing there with their mouths wide open just as you and I would be had we been there and suddenly two angels are standing there with them and the angels bring them back to reality by saying this, just as you have seen him go into heaven, so he will come back in the same manner on a cloud and in great glory. And so begins the acts of the apostles as they carry on the work of Jesus here on earth, trying to take the message of Jesus to the whole world. And my hope throughout this series is to challenge you in your commitment to Jesus. Let me say that again. My hope throughout this entire series is to challenge you in your commitment to Jesus. For a few weeks, you maybe have noticed in the entryways of the church this little sign that says, Will you? And maybe you've wondered, what what is that? Well, that sign has to do with the book that we are encouraging you to buy here at the first of the year. Uh, and, and the book is entitled, I Will. That's the reason for the will you, and the book is entitled, I Will. The question is really asking you this. Will you be committed to Jesus? And we're hoping that you will answer yes to that question. Yes, I will be committed to To Jesus. As you read through this book, the book of Acts, 
you will see the lives of the early Christians and you will see their their commitment to Jesus and what it was like and, and it will inspire you. And as you read this book, I'm encouraging you to purchase this book and read this book. You will be challenged to live that commitment out. You maybe will notice the subtitle to this book. It says, Nine Traits of the Outwardly Focused Christian. And I have to tell you, this is my kind of book. It's short. (laughs) And it's easy to read. Uh, the, The message is not complicated. The author's name is Tom Rayner, and he is very to the point. He doesn't mess around. He doesn't sugarcoat the message. He lays it on the line based on the truth of God's Word, and then it's our decision as to whether we're going to say, I will, to the challenge. Let me read to you how this book gets started in chapter 1, and I quote, It was one of the best days of my life. I was a very young man of 21 years, and I was deeply in love. The day was May 6, 1977. I asked my girlfriend, Nellie Jo, to marry me. I asked her to be my wife, and she gave me an incredible gift of grace. She said yes. You see, I can really be a jerk at times. I can let my temper get the best of me. I can be so busy doing good things that I neglect the best things, like my family, like my wife. But through it all, Nellie Jo has stood by me. She has loved me. She has forgiven me. One time, in fear and trembling, I asked her, I asked her why she has remained so faithful and loving when I have been a lousy husband at times. Her response was incredibly simple, but incredibly revealing. Thomas, she said, and she's the only person who calls me Thomas, I like that. She continued, when I said I do, and for better or worse, I meant it. I knew we would not always have easy times. I knew there would be struggles, but I made a commitment to you. I made my mind up. Unquote. Well, a lot of us have stood at a marriage altar and we have made a similar kind of commitment to our spouse. Just six days from today... My daughter, Rebecca, will be standing right here where I'm standing, and she is going to be having a chance to to make that same commitment to her to be husband, Luke. She's going to have a chance to say to him, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Marriage isn't always an easy road, is it? We know that, those of us who have been in that kind of relationship. We know it's not an easy road, but we commit ourselves to each other. And so too, the Christian life isn't always an easy road. The devil makes sure of that. But we commit ourselves to Jesus knowing that He first committed Himself to us. 
Could I challenge you with just two commitments this morning based on what we have read from Acts chapter 1? The first commitment would be this. I will give... I will give my all to Him because of the resurrection and that it is real. Notice, I, I did not say I will give part of my life to Him. Nor did I say I will be committed to Him as long as it's convenient for me. That's not the commitment that, that we have made to Him. Nor is that the commitment that we have made to our spouse. If next week, during that wedding ceremony, uh, Luke says to me, I I'm going to be committed to your daughter as long as it's convenient for me. If he says that, the wedding's going to stop right there. I'm going to call time out, and he and I are going to have a talk. Because that's not what marriage is. We commit our ourselves to our spouse for the distance even when the road gets tough. And so too, we fully commit ourselves to Jesus for the distance. And the motivation for this commitment to Jesus in this way is the fact that He raised from the dead. He's the only one who has, has, is able to make that claim. He is the only one who has risen from the dead never to die again. He's the Lord of all. He's the victor over the grave, and no one else can make that claim. Have you thought about the commitment that was being made to Jesus by those early disciples? They literally gave their lives for Him. Peter, we are told, was crucified upside down. He told his tormentors that he felt unworthy to be put to death in the same manner as his Lord Jesus, and so they turned his body upside down and crucified him on an X-shaped cross. Andrew, his brother, was severely whipped, and then he too was bound to a cross by ropes, and he hung there, we are told by tradition, he hung there preaching Jesus until he took his last breath. Matthew was killed by a sword, as was James, the, the brother of John. Thomas was killed with a spear. He had taken the, the gospel all the way to India. Bartholomew was, was preaching the gospel. Because of that, he was filleted alive, we are told by tradition, with a whip. James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned to death and beaten with clubs. Why? Because he was preaching Jesus. Luke, the author of this book that we are beginning to study, he was hanged because of his commitment to Jesus and his preaching the gospel. Mark was dragged through the streets by horses until he was dead. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was shot with arrows. Barnabas was stoned to death. Philip was crucified. Paul was beheaded. Paul was beheaded after he had been beaten times without number, we are told in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times he received from the Jews 39 lashes. 
Three times he was beaten with rods. He was imprisoned. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked and spent uh, a night and a day in the ocean. He experienced hunger and thirst and exposure to the elements. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, he writes, For I bear in my body the brand marks of Jesus. I mean, one disciple after the other was violently put to death. Why were they willing to go to this extreme? Because they believed in him wholeheartedly. They knew without a doubt that he had risen from the dead. For 40 days, Acts 1-3 says, Jesus showed himself to be alive and with many convincing proofs. What are those proofs? Well, mainly the eyewitness accounts. And you can read the gospel accounts and you can see the many times that people were with him after his resurrection. This was not wishful thinking for them. This, this was beyond their thinking. They had no clue that this was going to happen. Yes, he had told them. The prophets had written about it. But it it had all just gone right over their head. They did not understand that he was going to die and raise from the dead. And when he died, they thought that was the end of him. They thought he was taken away forever. Their leader was gone. And then all of a sudden he was back alive. This was more than amazing to them. It was incredible to them. Thomas said, I'll not believe unless I see and put my hands into the nail prints. In his hands and in his side and his feet. Thomas had that opportunity as Jesus stood before him. In fact, all of the disciples had that opportunity. The two on the road to Emmaus had that opportunity. Mary Magdalene had that opportunity. She saw him. She talked to him. She hugged him there at the graveside. James had that chance. His brother, the half-brother of Jesus, had that chance to see him And for that, he believed in him. Do you recall from John's writing that the brothers of Jesus, as he was alive and on the earth, they did not believe in him. John chapter 7, verse 5, makes that very clear. They did not believe in him, and it was only after the resurrection that they had put their faith in Jesus. James and Jude two half-brothers of Jesus, they then became leaders in the Lord's church and they wrote books in our New Testament and they too became martyrs for His sake. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6 says that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. This was not an illusion. It was not people hallucinating. The resurrection was and is for real. Now, another convincing proof is the empty tomb itself. Don't you think that if the resurrection were not true, that the enemies of Jesus would have produced 
his body, they would have went straight to that tomb and they would have pulled out the dead body of Jesus and in doing so, they would have squashed Christianity just that fast. But they couldn't do that because the tomb was empty. Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. Now, the Jewish leaders tried to bribe the Roman soldiers into saying that that the disciples stole away the body, and they did say that. But why would the disciples, why would they have done, they wouldn't have tried to do, do that. They were afraid of the Roman soldiers. They were afraid for their own lives. They would not have stood up to the Roman soldiers. And why would they die for something they knew wasn't true? They wouldn't but they would die for something they knew was true. These disciples knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. They saw him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They touched him. And another convincing proof of the resurrection, the fact that many of Jesus' own enemies were coming to the faith. Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, A great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the, to the faith. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection was not a hoax. It was a fact. And overnight, it was the driving force that took the gospel to every corner of the world. St. Jerome, writing from Bethlehem in 378 A.D., said this, From India to Britain... All nations resound with the death and resurrection of Christ. I'm asking you, as 2016 begins, will you commit yourself fully to the resurrected Jesus? He deserves our all. What exactly does a, does a fully committed life look like? Well, we're going to answer that question as we go through the book of Acts. And I'm encouraging you to keep your eyes open and keep your ears open and your heart open and try your very best with His help, the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Ask Him to fill you and to help you become that person who is fully committed to Jesus and you do that to his glory and his honor. Now here's a second commitment that I want to challenge you with today from Acts chapter 1. We've said, I will give my all to him because I believe he's the resurrected Jesus. But here's the second commitment. I will be his witness. I will be his witness. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We read it earlier, but let me remind you of it. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. This is Luke's great commission in the book of Acts. 
We are to be his witnesses. And he has given to us everything that we need to get that job done. He has given to us the Holy Spirit whom the disciples were to wait for. Jesus said to them, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, brothers and sisters, he came upon them and they were empowered to be his witnesses. You and I have that same Holy Spirit in us if we have given our lives to Jesus. He can empower us as well to be his witnesses. He's given to us His Spirit. He's given to us His Word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. He has given to us plenty of opportunities to witness. The question is, will we witness? Will you be His witness? Let me say this. This church depends upon your witness. More importantly, the growth of the kingdom of God depends upon your witness. Let me read to you again from this book on this subject of witnessing. He says, Only the name of the church has has been changed. The facts have not. Twin Springs Church started as a mission of a large downtown church. In the 1950s, the population was moving towards Twin Springs area. Some visionary leaders of the downtown church saw the possibilities of reaching more people with a new church in the growing community. So the church gave selflessly of people and money and time. In 1955, a new church was born. The early history of Twin Springs Church seems to be mostly positive. The church grew steadily from a core group of seven families to a peak of 450 in average worship attendance. The peak attendance occurred in 1985. Hardly anyone noticed the decline. At least hardly anyone said anything about the decline. For the next three decades, attendance declined steadily. But the decline was imperceptible to most of the members. Let's put it in perspective. The decline average was only about one attendee each month. But in more than 30 years, the decline in attendance was 360 in average attendance. Did you get that? The decline was 360 in average attendance. The once vibrant church of 450 in attendance now only has 90 showing up on a typical Sunday. What happened? Good question. He continues on. My involvement was minimal, but the analysis was pretty simple. I compared the growth of the church with the growth of the community. The community was growing rapidly through 1985. The church benefited from the demographic growth of Twin Springs, though its growth was not nearly as rapid as that of the community. It was indeed simple. As the community grew, the church grew. The members and the leaders of the church hardly had any intentional outreach or evangelism to the community. Twin Springs Church basically let people know that the doors were open and they came. 
at least they came until 1985. The church probably would have grown as rapidly as the community had it been intentional about going. But the leaders and members were content with a you-all-come attitude. The church never developed a DNA of going. They rarely reached out beyond their own walls. The members became more inwardly focused. They focused more and more on their comfort and needs. The decline was inevitable and tragic. Today, the church of 90 in attendance is in a large facility it cannot afford. It has been 12 years since Twin Springs Church had a full-time pastor. Cash reserves are totally depleted. I've seen it happen too many times. The church will close its doors in just a few years unless something dramatic and drastic takes place. Let me continue here. He says, I know this story seems to be about a church's decline. While that is part of the story, it's not the main issue The key issue is about those who were and are in the church. It's not an institutional story. It's about me, and it's about you. You see, Twin Springs Church was once full of members who made a decision to let their church be about them. Few members invited people to church. Even fewer shared the gospel with others in the community. Twin Springs Church was about me, myself, and I. When a church declines, we often want to blame the pastor or the church staff or the other church members or the denomination or circumstances. The reality is that church decline is the collective result of individuals who have decided they will not go. The church thus becomes a religious country club instead of an obedient Great Commission congregation. Now, I know that was a long reading, but I hope you grabbed a hold of what the author was saying. It's not about us. It's about us going in His name and sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. And that's why I say, this church depends on your witness. Ultimately, yes, it depends upon Him. He is the the leader of the church. He is the power behind our going. But if we don't go, if we don't share Christ, if we don't have a heart for this community, if we don't have a desire to evangelize the lost, if we don't have a a compelling nature within us to tell our story about Jesus, what He has done for us, then Twin Springs Church could be called Community Christian Church. I don't want that to be our story. We have a responsibility to pass on the good news of Jesus Christ. We must go and tell of His saving grace. We must invite our friends and our neighbors to church. A few weeks ago, I stepped into the baptistry and I baptized Tabitha Colvin. 
And maybe some of you were here at that service. And I shared her story of why she first came to this church. I know a lot of people through the years have poured their life into her, but here just recently, one of our members, Kathy Hall, invited her to church. Kathy is a friend of of Tabs and a co-worker with her, and she simply invited her to come to Community Christian Church with her, and Tab came, and she experienced Jesus here. She heard the word preached. She experienced the worship here. You welcomed her warmly. And, and it all started with an invitation. Just, will you come to church with me? You never know where an invitation might land. What it might do in a person's life. I told that story about Tab and that very morning after church was over, Donna Wilson came up to me and she reminded me of her own story. She said, Kevin, do you remember what what brought me to Community Christian Church? She said, Karen Paddock. Uh, She was working at the time in the courthouse and and Donna worked for a lawyer so they were up uh, crossing paths all the time with each other and Karen invited Donna to come to Community Christian Church. And Donna said, it took several invitations for me to finally come. She didn't come on the first time. But Karen wouldn't give up. She just kept giving that invitation to Donna. And finally, Donna came to church. And just like Tab, as she came to church, you welcomed her. You loved on her. You made her feel apart. You you helped... Uh, her want to come back and she experienced the worship of Jesus here and she heard the word preached and, and the Lord began to work on her through the Holy Spirit. And on May 7, 1995, Donna was baptized into Jesus. I see Donna sitting right back there. Fifteen months later, September 8, 1996, Donna's husband, Kevin, was baptized into Jesus. Two months later, November 12, 1996, Donna's mother, Belinda Richardson, was baptized into Jesus. A couple of years would pass by, In January of 1999, two of Donna's kids would give their lives to Jesus, Nick and Kate, on the same day, January 17th. A year would pass, and Donna's stepdad, Jack Plain, would give his life to Jesus in Christian baptism, February 10th, 2002. Three years would pass, February 27, 2005, Donna's youngest, Kristen, would give her life to Jesus. The chain has gone on and on. In fact, even until just recently, uh, 2013, August 25th, Donna's cousin, Roy, and his wife, Pam, 
they had started coming to church. Roy was baptized into Jesus Christ there in 2013. And you know what? Roy and Pam are now bringing two of their grandkids with them. I mean, this chain goes on and on. And, and we were counting it. Donna and I were counting it together. Not just those who have been coming to Christ for the first time and being baptized into Jesus, but there have been a whole host of other people who have come, who, who've rededicated their life. They've, they've got planted into a church. And this, this one invitation given by Karen Paddock to Donna Wilson has multiplied into more than 20 people who have come to Community Christian Church. One invitation. You never know what's going to happen when you give an invitation to someone. We need more chains like this. We need more people going with the good news of Jesus. We need more people inviting their friends, sharing their story. We need you to not be quiet about your faith. You know, I've, I've been amazed <laughs> just watching it. Up until two baseball seasons ago, I would not have guessed that we had a dozen Royals fans in this whole church. Never heard anybody talk about the Royals other than Rick and Bob and, and just a few others. I mean, they were die-hard Royals fans through the hard years. But the last two baseball seasons, I mean, it's a different story, isn't it? I, the Royals fans have come out of the woodworks. Everybody's a Royals fan. I went this Christmas to Walmart to try and buy a blue royal shirt for my wife to stick into her stocking, and there were none left. And you, you hear people talking about the royals, and, and they're, they're, they're quite proud, and, and they walk with a swagger, and they, they are just, I mean, they're excited about their team. And that's the way we should be about Jesus. We should be excited about Him. We should be willing to share with others about Him. We should be on fire. Because He's raised from the dead. I mean, that's the whole bottom line right there, brothers and sisters. He's risen from the dead. Amen? He's alive. He has conquered the grave. He's conquered the devil. He's conquered sin. And we need to tell the world because the world needs to hear. And so as I close my message today, I want to ask you two questions. And if you care to accept the challenge, will you respond by saying, I will? 
And the first question is, will you give your all to the resurrected Christ? And the second question is, will you be his witness? Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your plan of sending Jesus to this earth. Thank you that he died for us. Thank you that he raised from the dead. And help us, help us all to get on board being fully committed to him. And help us to understand what that really even means and what it looks like. And help us to be your witness, God. If we have the courage and the, the fire within us to talk about the royals and to talk about the chiefs and the cardinals and whatever team it is that we're uh, waving their flag, Lord, then help us to know that we've got to be waving Jesus' flag. Pray this in Jesus' name.